And welcome to Dear Jane. It is a new year, new episode, and a new era for us as we go with uh, video here. We're kind of excited. Uh, Going to do a lot of new things here in the new year with the uh, podcast. I'm your host, Scott Baker, and glad that you are joining us here on uh, what is a new time, uh, new things to talk about here in 2024 as we embark on a really important year uh, when you consider the decisions that we're going to be making uh, as a country. Joining us here to, uh, on our, I'm so excited to talk to Peter. Peter Range is the uh, CEO of Ohio Right to Life. He hosts his own radio show. He was very, very involved in the Ohio vote last fall. Uh, that ended up enshrining the right to abortion in the state constitution. Uh, and so we want to pick his brain. I want to I want to learn from him, kind of uh, see what we can learn from Ohio. And, and so, so, Peter, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Scott, it's really great to be with you. Looking forward to the conversation. All right, Peter. So as we sit here today, it's January 2024. Um, if we could get you a time machine, and take you back one year ago, what what would you tell yourself? What advice would you give yourself? It's a great question. Um, you know, I would begin uh, with just stay close to Jesus Christ. Uh, stay close to uh, God uh, who sustains all things, who gives life to all things, and who even in the midst of great darkness can bring good out of it. And so we're facing great darkness here in the state of Ohio, but it's been very cathartic to kind of get back to work post issue one. Uh, so first and foremost, you know, I'd approach this from a faith perspective that to get through the challenges and the lies that, you know, your state might uh, face in this year to come, like you're going to have to be grounded in a deeper truth beyond yourself in a deeper truth beyond uh, the cause that you're fighting for, because the darkness that will come uh, at you guys or at the other states that are facing this type of ballot initiative, it is intense. It is deep. And if you don't have a deep abiding faith in the Lord, it's going to be tough to survive it. What what were you not prepared for in retrospect? Well, you know, as a conservative, I feel like I hear a lot that the media, you know, twists things and bends things. Uh, but I wasn't quite ready. I mean, this is the first campaign that I was deeply involved in as if I was running as a candidate. And to see the media just completely outright lie when it came to some of the things that we were trying to articulate. Um, and oftentimes the media just even ignoring what we wanted to say. When we looked at some of the exit polling, Scott, I mean, one of the things that really stuck out was the fact that 29% of those who voted for the yes vote thought we were lying. That was one of the reasons they voted for us. And I can see why. I mean, the Cleveland Plain dealer a week before the election came out said, look, if you are pro-choice, then vote for issue one. If you are pro-life, then vote against issue one. Really trying to simplify the issue and issue one went far beyond uh, just whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. It went, uh, you know, abortion through all nine months of pregnancy here in the state of Ohio. It also said every individual has a right to make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions. So we were just having a fight uh, 
this week, actually, uh, in the Ohio House about HB 68. So some of your readers or listeners might not uh, be familiar with that, but it's the Save Women's Sports Act, and it's also the SAFE Act. So it keeps adolescents from taking these uh, kind of dangerous uh, hormonal drugs, things of that nature, or being castrated uh, when they're 8, 9, 10 years old. So we passed that through our House and Senate. It was vetoed by the governor. And so right now we're trying to override that veto. Thankfully, uh, that's what the House just did. Uh, But I mention all of that because one of the things that the other side said was, hey, this is just about abortion. It's just whether you're pro-life or you're pro-choice. But in their arguments yesterday on the floor of the State House, they were referencing the election saying, look, we already proved in November that individuals want to write to their reproductive decisions over their own bodies, including all this kind of transgender medicine or healthcare, when all during the election leading up to it, including the media said, well, this isn't about that. It's just simply about the abortion issue. So uh, it's unfortunate about what they've kind of snuck into uh, our constitution through this, but uh, it certainly surprised me with how much, not only the national media, which you expect, but the local media as well, just completely lies through the entire process. So um, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, I have a media background and we, and we do some media trainings, uh, across the country and things like that. And, and I'm not surprised at all. I don't think anybody's going to be surprised to hear that the media was, was less than honest. At the same time, though, we can't just ignore them, right? We can't just say we're not going to engage at all. At least I don't believe we can. I know there are some who believe that. And, and, uh, I think that's a mistake. So understanding the playing field when it comes to the media, um, how, how best to move forward with them? Well, I 100% agree with you, Scott. You cannot ignore the media. And in fact, if you're a state that's going to be facing one of these ballot initiatives, you have to start today inviting your media out to your major newspapers, out to a cup of coffee, um, you know, even outside of this issue, whatever's coming up and just say, Hey, I've been reading your stuff. We'd love to sit down, hear more of your story, get to know them as persons. There's two specific examples I can think of in this past campaign. One individual who literally just wrote an erroneous article. So we actually called up her editor to get her to change the story because she refused to do so at the beginning. And she began yelling at our press secretary, calling her a crazy Christian who just wanted to control women's bodies. So we developed a relationship with her over a period of eight months. And by the time that eight months was coming close to the election, we had her actually writing pretty fair and balanced articles. But it took eight months to kind of develop that relationship and walk her through some of the facts. You know, I think there was a study out of Northwestern about 10 years ago or so that said, you know, you can present somebody with immutable facts, but unless you have a relationship with them, they're much less apt to accept those facts. Um, there's another individual who wrote uh, for the Cincinnati Inquirer that we developed a good relationship with, and she was willing to kind of take some of those difficult, challenging questions to the other side that we were bringing up and weren't being answered. So, you know, I think developing those relationships will at least give you an opportunity to get the most fair and balanced uh, approach to this issue as you can. It's not easy, but you need an army of people to do it. So you got to start right away. Is it is it as sinister as um, the media is working in concert with the other side, do you think? Are you taking their marching orders and talking points from them, or is it not quite that organized? That's a good question. You know, I don't know because I wasn't in those those rooms, if you will, when they were having conversations. But I would say that the individuals who are promoting this particular amendment and then the individuals who are covered in the media, they have the same worldview. They have the same uh, desire to see, you know, the pro-choice side win, to see uh, abortion allowed. Um, and so seeing the world in the same way, they're, they're more apt uh, to give a favorable opinion to the other side's perspective on particular issues. 
Um, so that's certainly a challenge. And one of the things that the other side did effective that I also encourage the pro-life side to do that we didn't do here in the state of Ohio is they hosted kind of um, press conferences with the media on a pretty consistent basis. Um, so they made them feel like they were a part of the campaign as well. Um, and it's tough and it's difficult sometimes because you're going to get those challenging questions to begin. But I think it's important to kind of keep them in the loop and, again, keep that relationship going so it's not coming out of the blue when we say – hey, late-term abortions are happening here in the state of Ohio. And they'll say, well, no, they're not. And, you know, where do you find that? And so we have to show them, well, here's the Ohio Department of Health statistics that show you, you know, over 300 abortions after 19 weeks. Um, But again, you know, that information is better received uh, when you have that relationship with those individuals. So we go back to, let's go back again now to January of 2023. Uh, and and you're, you're formulating a plan and you've got partners and that's, you know, each of these states are going to have multiple groups, right, that are uh, putting together plans and wanting to be involved in this. Um, what do you wish you would have thought of or what didn't you, I mean, just from a strategic standpoint, politically, uh, what what do you wish you would have thought of then? Yeah, maybe not so much uh, different things I would have thought of, but things I just would have emphasized more. Um, so one of them would have been, you know, those relationships with the media. The second thing would be relationships with every single elected official um, in your state. You know, we um, we held briefings for the Senate and House members. Um, we were able to engage our governor. Uh, however, you know, he didn't really fully engage until kind of later in the campaign. And, you know, part of that is just the fractitious nature of conservative politics. So you not only had a, uh, a fractitious nature of the pro-life movement here in the state of Ohio that we had to kind of corral all these groups and bring them together and, you know, work in the spirit of John 17, you know, Father, let that be one as you and I are one. Uh, but we also had this kind of uh, house fight where, you know, our house uh, leader was elected in the caucus. And then there was a deal that happened with the Democratic caucus, which gave us a new house speaker. And so there was warring parties. And I literally had one of these house members say, well, I didn't want to engage in your campaign because person X was engaged in your campaign. And, you know, my response was, guys, this is about, you know, stopping abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. We can't get into this fractitious politics. So, you know, I would tell myself back then that just like I needed to reach out to the media on a more consistent basis, I need to reach out to every single House member. And again, this can't be on all on one individual. It's got to be a team effort. But making sure you're building relationships with all the different fractions of the conservative movement so they're all using the platforms they have their Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts, every public uh, speech that they go out to, and they're talking about, you know, issue one or prop one, whatever, you know, the number will be in your your particular state. Because we we try to create an echo chamber of individuals all saying the same things. We just weren't able to do that uh, because people necessarily weren't on the same page. Um, and, and that's so very important, particularly when the media is not sharing your message. When you don't have your prime players in the game also sharing the message, you know, who's going to listen to, you know, the old white guy who's pro-life, uh, you know, talking from his uh, pro-life position. Right. Right. But I want to, uh, I want to stay there for a second because one of the yeah. things that I know from you, uh, cause I've been on some calls and, and heard some of the research that you've, you've found is, uh, one of the TV spots that did the most poorly was the one with the governor. Um, you know, and so and so it seems like the message being carried from elected officials to the public can sometimes backfire. But yet it's also important to keep them in the loop. Help me reconcile those, the two. 
Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, you talked to different campaigns who um, kind of broke down the impressions on that commercial. You have some people say that that commercial was effective in the context of, you know, getting it before viewers' eyes. And Governor DeWine is someone who's trusted by the general public here in the state of Ohio. Um, and But there's others who would say, look, that really didn't impact uh, voters, uh, particularly because Governor DeWine and Fran, uh, a little bit older in age, and again, it had that impression of it's just an older politician kind of telling me what to do. And I think there was was, to a certain extent, kind of an anti-Columbus um, uh, backlash uh, to a degree in our election as well, because we try to pass an August election, which was going to raise the bar to change our constitution. So I would say to reconcile those two things, you know, it's maybe how you use those particular politicians and how they're using the levers at their disposal uh, to help impact the fight. So one of the areas, for example, that Governor DeWine was incredibly helpful was, you know, reaching out to his connections around the state to help us fundraise towards the end of the campaign. And that was tremendously, tremendously helpful. Also reaching out to different politicians that he knew to also be supportive of this particular cause. So, you know, in retrospect, maybe it wasn't the best to have him on TV, uh, but every time he's at a press conference, making sure that he has the talking points with right. the media and he has that a year before the election is really important. Um, so, you know, again, in retrospect, maybe not the best thing to have him in a TV commercial, but having him engaged throughout the entire process uh, is really helpful for the campaign. You know, I think it's important. We hear terms like uh, enshrining abortion in the Constitution and we hear uh, you know, codifying things like that, all these terms. Let's, let's talk real here. What exactly, I mean, people need to realize just how extreme, uh, these things are and, and what they allow. Um, because I don't, I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people get caught up into, well, you know, well, there'll be certain limits and weeks and things like that. That's not what these, these votes are. These are unlimited, unrestricted abortion, right? That's absolutely correct. Yeah. And the way that they word it uh, is scary. They say that every individual has a right to carry and make one's own reproductive decisions, uh, including but not limited to. And they mentioned, you know, contraception, fertility treatment, uh, miscarriage care, which is already legal here, you know, in the state of Ohio across the country. If you have a miscarriage, you can get the care that you need. But unfortunately, you know, they make it seem like your life is going to be in danger unless this amendment passes. So first and foremost, they, they mentioned the word individual because that means anyone of any age and anyone of any gender. Uh, and when you go to Planned Parenthood's website or the ACLU, when they're talking about reproductive decisions, they have this Venn diagram that reproductive decisions, including not just abortion, but also, again, kind of this trans reproductive care as well. So that's one of the challenges. The other thing is, you know, uh, the Planned Parenthood versus Casey set the undue burden standard here in the country that, you know, you could have limits to an abortion as, as, as long as there wasn't an undue burden on the woman. Well, in the language of the amendment, they drop the undue st uh, standard. They just put any burden, any burden on an individual accessing the, their right, including any third party that is helping that individual access their right. Um, so that could include, you know, here in the state of Ohio, a third party person could be a teacher, could be a soccer coach that is simply assisting his 14 or 15 year old high school student to go get an abortion at Planned Parenthood. And they could do that without the parent's permission because it's every individual. So an individual, again, could be a 14 or 15 year old young girl. The other challenging part of this is that they say that, you know, abortion could be allowed for the women's health. 
And we know in, in Doe v. Bolton, that's Rose Companion case, health includes all factors. That's emotional, psychological, financial, you know, the, to the well-being of the mother, the woman's age even. Um, so that really legalizes abortion again in the seventh, eighth, even ninth month of pregnancy uh, if a woman is seeking an abortion. And we know that abortions, you know, it, it, it's, it's a misnomer to say that these late-term abortions are needed uh, to save a woman's life. Why doesn't that, I mean, you know, you can only guess, I know, but as you look, as you have looked at the data, things like that, why, why doesn't that resonate? So f- specifically, late term abortion, uh, why, why doesn't that resonate? Or you, you talked about parental consent. Uh, why aren't people more bothered by that as, as nearly as you can tell? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I think I think both those things do resonate. Uh, I think uh, when we talked to voters overwhelmingly, they were for parental rights. But again, you know, part of the challenge there is when the media has said repeatedly in their articles as they're covering this that, well, this doesn't involve parental rights. Parental rights would still kind of remain in place or there isn't late term abortions in Ohio. I can't tell you how many reporters I spoke to that said, well, there, there's no late term abortions here in Ohio. And I would show them literally the data from the Ohio Department of Health. And they, you know, would just kind of scuff it off or say, well, we don't really know that, you know, how is this late term? Well, the baby's fully formed, you know, the baby could survive outside the womb. That's, that's a late term abortion. So, you know, part of it is just a believability factor that we struggle in the pro-life cause uh, because of the pro-life brand. And I don't know how that's been so impacted other than outside of, you know, the effective job that the left has done to a certain extent, even, you know, now attacking pregnancy centers and calling them, you know, institutions that are terrorizing women. Um, you know, we have an image problem in the movement and, and how you get over that, uh, you know, I don't have the silver bullet for that. Yeah. And that was going to lead me into my sort of next phase of the conversation. You know, if you take a step back from Ohio, um, the pro-life movement has been losing, whether it's Kentucky or Kansas. Uh, I mean, that's just the cold, hard reality is we have been losing, why do you think that is? I mean, these are these are in some cases some red states, certainly purple. Um, why are we losing so far? Is it our messaging? Are we not saying the right thing? Are we not delivering it the right way? Is it that we're not getting our own people out? What What's your best guess? Yeah, thank you. I think there's a couple factors to that. So first and foremost, I think the reality is we're facing 50 years of a warped conscience as a nation. You know, we were told by the law, and the law is a teacher. The law taught us that, you know, abortion uh, is a good thing because it was legal. And so when people see something that's legal, they think, well, it must be good. And a lot of that goes back to kind of, um, uh, you know, it's Aristotelian or St. Thomas Aquinas. You have to look at, you know, every civil law is based upon a natural law, and the natural law is ultimately based upon on the divine law. So when you're having a conversation with somebody about, well, what should be civilly allowed or not, you're really talking about the nature of God at the end of the day and who you think God is. Now, outside of that longer conversation for another podcast, um, when you look at the way that our conscience has been formed over the past 50 years, we've said that ab- abortion is a necessary evil. We need it in some way, shape, or form, maybe just for these extreme cases. So that's number one. Number two, talking about extremes, I think that's a big challenge for us, but it's also something that we can exploit or talk into. Um, when given two extremes, either what is seen as the pro-life extreme or the pro-choice extreme, right now, citizens of this nature, na- uh, nation are choosing the pro-choice extreme because they just want abortion there just in case. 
just in case of rape, just in case of incest, just in case of life of the mother. So when we try to paint the other side as extreme, which they absolutely are, abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, people are still choosing that extreme rather than the other extreme. So for example, over 60% of Ohioans here in the state said that a really important factor for them voting for the yes cause was that we had a six-week uh, abortion ban uh, here in, in the States when the heartbeat was detected that did not have exceptions for the life, or did, excuse me, did not have exceptions for rape or incest. Now, I am a pro-life purist. I, I believe in every single life, no matter how that life is conceived, is deserving of the, of the fundamental right to life. But I also have to be a realist too. Like that played a part in people's voting because when you did put exceptions into that legislation, we asked folks, well, what if there were those exceptions? The support goes from, you know, high 20s to over 50% support for that type of legislation. So uh, when that was passed here in the state of Ohio, you know, it had overwhelmingly conservative support but maybe not overwhelmingly support from the state of Ohio. So one is a warped conscience of 50 years. Two is the choosing of extremes. Uh, you know, they choose the extremes of the pro-choice side. Uh, but then three, uh, I don't think we can ignore, and there's some pro-lifers that, that want to say, well, this really doesn't matter. I, I don't see how in the realm of politics that this does not matter. But when the other side outspends you two to one, mm -hmm. I mean, they spent over $60 million here in the state of Ohio. Uh, we had roughly around $30 million. And some of that was, uh, I would say, probably about $15 million was really invested into the August election to try to raise the threshold to 60%. So we really had $15 million uh, to fight against issue one. Um, for me, as a pro-lifer, that's a heck of a lot of money. Uh, but the reality is, in these types of fights, uh, it's just not going to cut it. Talking with Peter Range, who's the uh, CEO of Ohio Right to Life, and he's got his own uh, radio show as well, and just very active there in the state of Ohio. I want to. I think one of the things that you talked about really hit the nail on the head, and I think it's the biggest challenge facing our movement. And I'm with you, pro-life purists, every life matters. But there's also a political pragmatism that says, okay, what can be successful? And and we are seemingly stuck in this endless tug of war within our movement. Uh, we're, you know, nobody wants to, to give an inch. And until we figure that out, um, I think one of the things you have to consider is uh, the alternative, which is what we're seeing now in Ohio and we're seeing in Minnesota and some of these other states. It's extreme as far as you could ever think it might be. Um, I just think that that's something that we have to consider when we're having this debate is, yeah, we don't, you know, you don't want any kind of, you don't want to give any leeway, but boy, oh boy, the alternative is, is just scary. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as a movement, we can't lose or, or keep our eyes off the North Star. You know, we want the abolition of abortion. We're looking for the restoration of culture. So we have to keep our eyes focused on that because you can become comfortable if you kind of just get swallowed up in the pragmatism of the, of the movement. You have to be bold sometimes. And like a William Wilberforce, bring that bill before, you know, the members of parliament every single year for the abolition of slavery. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't continue to do that. But we also have to be realists too. We have to live in the world that we're living in. And 
in the state of Ohio, and the country is just not at that point. So I'll take every victory that I can get, and I can save as many lives as possible. So I think, you know, from a national perspective, and, you know, I'm not necessarily endorsing these strategies, but from the national perspective, maybe it is pursuing that 15th, uh, 15-week uh, ban on abortion. And again, that doesn't cover 90% of the abortions, but if that's what we can get done, let's get that done. If the states, you know, maybe it's 12 weeks, maybe it's nine weeks, maybe it's six weeks with exceptions, whatever it may be, um, you know, I'll take that and moving towards that ultimate goal. But then nationally too, I mean, I think there has to be some type of strategy that's looking at bringing the 14th Amendment back to the United States Supreme Court. I mean, the 14th Amendment guarantees the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, just like, you know, the Declaration of Independence did as well. And when you look at when that was written, that was written, of course, around slavery um, after the Civil War to guarantee that African-Americans had freedom. But it was also written after uh, geneticists for the very first times in 1858 were saying that human life begins at conception. So most states around the around the country at that time had abortion laws on the books that recognized the dignity of the human person. So I think we can say that the the writers of the 14th Amendment believed that when we're talking about every life has a right to life, that included the preborn. One of the things you said a little bit ago um, surprised me, actually. You said that you were outspent. The pro-life side was outspent two to one. I thought it'd be bigger than that. Um, uh, So it it doesn't surprise me at all that, that the other side has a lot more money. Where do they get their money? Um, so the likes of George Soros, uh, the 1630 fund, Arabella Industries, um, there was a Swiss uh, billionaire that also donated uh, to a couple different groups, kind of dark money groups that, again, then funneled the money to uh, Planned Parenthood Action and, and those types of groups here in the state of Ohio. So um, they have uh, plenty of money available. And in our story here in Ohio, I mean, we were really helped by Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. So very thankful for them stepping in. And they had a major donor that assisted their efforts as well. Otherwise, we would have been outspent, you know, three to one, six to one pretty easily. You know, Michigan did a Herculean job, excuse me, of raising funds for their particular campaign. I think they raised around $22, $25 million, uh, but they have one of the best fundraising apparatuses in the state. I think they have four fundraisers on staff there full-time for Michigan Right to Life. But the other side, again, they spent around close to $60 million up there as well. So $60 million they dumped in Michigan, $60 million they dumped here in Ohio. Um, and our money primarily came, uh, a large chunk of it, from Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America. Otherwise, it would have been a five-to-one, six-to-one fight. That's crazy. Um, I mean, that, that's it, it can be discouraging uh, when, you, when you know that that's the uphill climb. Um, one of the things that I know that uh, goes on in some of these states now where this vote will be coming up uh, this fall is what they call the de- decline to sign effort. And I want to I talk to you a little bit about that because I know uh, I've been on enough calls and heard from you that you, you really believe uh, that this is important. Uh, so what, what just to explain it to people, uh, in the states where it takes – uh, X number of signatures from citizens to get the issue on the ballot. Um, the pro-life side is pushing back with a decline to sign effort, uh, basically saying, here's what this is. Please don't sign their petition. Right. Um, and so here's my take on it. First off, you're, I, if I've understand, I don't want to speak for you. You can, you can speak to it for yourself, obviously. Uh, you think it's an important issue, but, I want to connect it to the funding disparity. 
and how we have limited funds anyway. Is the decline to sign effort a good expenditure of our limited funds? Why, why is it effective in your opinion? Yeah, I believe it is. And, you know, going back to one of your earlier questions, maybe one thing I would have done differently is maybe invest more in the decline to sign campaign. And that mm-hmm. is because, I mean, when we started this process and they, we knew that they were play, paying individuals, you know, $15, $20 an hour to come into the state because there's professional groups from around the country that come in and they gather signatures for these state groups to get on the ballot to start with. So we had people from California, Nevada, Michigan coming in the state. And when they're getting signatures, we have them on, on camera saying, oh, this just allows abortion up through 12 weeks or this just allows through 15, like just basically lying to the voters right there. Um, but with that being said, um, I think if you invest in a de- decline to sign, you might be surprised by the success that you have. And so maybe that is working with a group that fights against these uh, individuals coming in and, and signing on a more um, professional basis. Uh, but at the very least, building up your own army, it's a very good start to kind of build up your infrastructure for the campaign to come after that. So, for example, here in the state of Ohio, I mean, they had to get 500,000 signatures, roughly, give or take a, a few thousand there to get on the ballot. Uh, we were expecting that they were very easily going to get up to a million signatures uh, when they went through their vetting process. And, you know, all those signatures were uh, checked out to see if they, they were valid or not. Excuse me. Um, they only got about 700,000 signatures. So, you know, 200,000 signatures less, we could have kept them even off the ballot here in 2023. Um, so by investing in decline to sign, you have the opportunity to, number one, keep them off the ballot. But then number two, you have an opportunity to build out your infrastructure, which you're going to need to kind of run a statewide campaign to reach the voters. And you're also getting your messages out there along with them when they're getting their message out there, because that's what they're doing. And they're, they're, they're building up an email base of folks that they've got their signatures, they got them signed up, and they can just email them for the rest of the campaign about, hey, don't forget to get out and vote, because the get out the vote is so incredibly important. So maybe then the end goal isn't necessarily that they fail to get enough signatures. That's ideal, obviously. But what you're saying is there are other benefits that you you start to get your infrastructure in place uh, for the real fight when it comes in the fall. That's right. And you and you run a, a Bernie Sanders campaign when it comes to fundraising. You know, you get more people donating or chipping in at twenty five, thirty dollars. You know, that does add up. And, and you know, very thankful that uh, when I went around and talked around the state of Ohio, I mean, some uh, grandmas and grandpas were given twenty five dollars and then some came up and they would give you four thousand dollars. And then some people would drop on twenty thousand dollars. And all of that money is just so crucial when you're trying to combat the lies of the left in these campaigns. So, um, you know. We are an uphill battle. It's a David versus Goliath fight, but it's a fight that we have to we have to enter into. Uh, we can't abdicate our responsibility to fight for the preborn. And you know, the Lord is is maybe um, you know trying to wake up the nation, and maybe Missouri or maybe another state is going to you know create the blueprint with how to defeat these things. Uh, but we must try. It is absolutely our duty to. In order to win these campaigns, we need strategic partners who know how to effectively communicate on the life issue. And that's what our friends at Cogency Strategic specialize in, is winning your campaign for life. They can help with messaging and delivering and can help you even uh, raise the money to do it. So to learn more about them, check out CogencyStrategic.com. They are only focused on the pro-life issue. Um, so, Peter... 
Can we win? What's it going to take to, to sort of stop the tide of what we have seen uh, so far? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I do believe we, we could win. Um, you know, part of me wants to, you know, do this all over again. As crazy as that, that sounds, because I want to take some of those lessons I learned and kind of put it to play here in this particular campaign. So number one, yes, I, I think we can win. I think we have to be willing to invite uh, experts in to come in and help us uh, on the ground to create a, a really solid ground game. Uh, people who have involvement in politics, who know how to win campaigns. I think that's that's important. We can't lose that. But at the same time, um, those individuals coming in to help, uh, we also can't be um, uh, so prideful that we're not willing to accept other people's thoughts and ideas as the campaign is transpiring. And I feel like to a certain extent, uh, you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen, but very early on, uh, you have to choose some really smart, intelligent folks who have involvement in these types of campaigns, in particular ballot initiative campaigns that are going to be able to guide you through the process. Uh, we had some terrific, amazing groups uh, that worked with us. Uh, but I think um, from the very beginning, it would have uh, benefited us to have some of these later groups that we brought on with us from the very beginning because they had particular experience in ballot initiative campaigns. But it seems to me that a lot of the problem is we are using um, the same messaging, the same messaging delivery that we have been using, the pro-life, we being the pro-life movement, uh, for 30 years now. And, and we haven't really, somehow we've got to shake it up, right? I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to change the tide here, we have got to shake it up somehow. Uh, so I don't know exactly what the answer is to that, but it seems like we need to do something different. Uh, somebody come, we need to come along. Like you said, it's just going to take one state, one state where we find that winning recipe. Uh, and then I think we can turn the tide, but I just, I I think it's going to, you mentioned, uh, you know, you can't be so prideful, not as to, so not as to listen to others and maybe take the advice of others. Uh, I think that that's wise advice because I think that that's a trap that we can fall into many times. Yeah, you know, one thing to consider in the midst of this, I mean, you look at some of those other campaigns that were run, you know, and I'm just thinking maybe right now of Michigan and Ohio, but we we try to focus on late-term abortion. Uh, we try to focus on how extreme they were. Uh, but do we really have a discussion about what abortion is? Um, mm-hmm. And I would, you know, just have to look, take a look in the mirror and say, well, no, I didn't really inform many more people here in the state of Ohio about what actually happens during abortion, uh, about, you know, one of the effective campaign commercials, for example, that was created here in the state of Ohio, I think was done by Created Equal. Uh, Created Equal is a group that, you know, they show the, uh, the pictures of aborted fetuses, which are very challenging pictures. A lot of people don't like them, but they made a commercial about, uh, women who had been, uh, who had died through abortion procedures. I think it was really, really well done. And, uh, and I think it was impactful. The only thing they didn't have really to put behind it was the finance is to really make it kind of a a statewide impact to a certain degree. But, you know, the left is very good at telling stories and being emotional and catching some of our conservative language like they did here in the state of Ohio. So, you know, for example, their first commercial, they talked about faith, family, and freedom. They had a picture of the divine mercy image of Jesus in the background, an individual praying. Uh, Then they came out later in the campaign and they had a pastor from uh, maybe a Presbyterian church talking about, you know, we should choose 
uh, yes on issue one because I'm a person of faith and you know I respect uh, the decision between the woman and her God. There's a lot of people, and I think in our campaign too, that we kind of said, hey, well, let's not talk about faith. Let's kind of keep that out of there. If we if we remove ourselves from that space, that'll be filled by the other side. And uh, and it certainly was here in the state of Ohio. They appealed to faith, family, and freedom and took our conservative talking points and ran with it. You just gave some advice that I have given other people before. If you leave the blank to fill in, people, the other side will fill it in for you. However, on like I, you know, I'm here in Missouri and I can, uh, you can hear this in many different states about the other side saying, well, keep your religion off my body. They want to make this a, a religious fight. Uh, actually, we know that that's exactly, it's a faith fight, but they want to make this vote about religion. Keep your religion off my body. And I think that might resonate with some in the middle. Uh, some people who might be in the middle, yeah, I don't want your, you know, don't impose your religion on me. How do we strike that balance of doing what you're talking about, but also not falling into their trap of making this about uh, forcing religion down their throat? Well, two more things maybe to consider then. And it's great, great question, great comment. Um, if we just got our religious people to vote with us, we would win mm. the election. You know, 52% of Catholics voted for issue one, 45% of evangelicals voted for issue one here in the state of Ohio. So if we get our people who are in church, uh, hearing a message of life and why they need to vote against these ballot initiatives, and we just got the majority of those folks, we could win these elections. So first and foremost, if we make it about that and we get our people to the polls, it'll win. And, you know, that's another area to start early again and really emphasize with our bishops, our priests, our pastors to say, look, you need to start preaching about this today. Not a month before the election, not two months before the election, and not just one time. I mean, I, I love my home, my home church, my home parish, um, but they gave one homily on it. And it was a great homily. It was vote no on issue one. Here are the reasons why. But one homily is not going to erase 50 years of a warped conscience. So we got to get our priests and our pastors, our deacons preaching early and often on this issue. Maybe have a series of, of, and, you know, our Catholic conference, for example, they did a great job suggesting to our priests and they gave them kind of layout. Hey, this is what you should maybe talk about each week going into it. But all of that was optional. And quite frankly, uh, many of our priests and many of our deacons took it as, as optional. So they, you know, preached on it again, maybe once or twice. Some of them did it more consistently than, than others. But look, at the end of the day, if we don't get our people to vote our way, then we have no chance. Peter, I think you're going to have a lot of wisdom to share uh, with these other states. We're probably looking about uh, maybe what I've seen, maybe a dozen this fall. So I know a lot of people are going to be able to tap into your wisdom. I, I really appreciate you joining us here today and, and sharing some of this in, insight. I've enjoyed the conversation. Scott, you're a good man. Thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Any way I can be of assistance, let me know. I'll even come down to Missouri and knock on some doors if I can for you guys. All right. Sounds great. Thank you very much, Peter. Take care. My thanks to Peter Range for joining us today here on Dear Jane. Don't forget to like or subscribe on your platform of choice. Lots to talk about here in the year 2024. So we're going to have a lot more episodes of Dear Jane coming up. Uh, also, leave us some feedback on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We would love to hear from you. And then you can follow us on the socials as well. So thank you very much for listening. For our producer, Kate Yule, and our editor, Jacob McCormick, I'm Scott Baker. Have a great day.